Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 44. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Then he said to them, and I have this up here if you need to see it. It's the New King James. These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Let me begin by thanking you for giving me this opportunity to come and be with you tonight. I do appreciate that very much. And I have uh, known about this congregation for a long time. Uh, Larry Fulford, as you know, is uh, one of our members at Osprey. And so he talks about you frequently, fondly, but frequently. And uh, also, I've got to, get to, got to know Kevin very well. And I want you to know how much I appreciate not only the invitation to be here, but the fact that you brought Kevin in. Because I've, gone, uh, I've had an opportunity now to talk to Kevin a, a lot, and uh, I really li love him, and I, I think he does a great work for you. And I, I'm sure you feel exactly the same way. And I, um, I want you to hold up his hands as he continues to work for the Lord here in this area. Let me uh, tell you about Jesus. He was 32 years old when he started preaching in the region of Caesarea Philippi. This is a map of Caesarea Philippi. Does it have a pointer on it? It's on the bottom or on the top? Round in the middle. Never mind. <laughs> I didn't see it. But here's Caesarea Philippi. You see it rust off, uh, off the Jordan River. And here is a picture actually of modern day Caesarea Philippi as it looks today, at least the ruins of the city. Jesus has started preaching there. He's about, like I said, 32. It's about 18 months before his crucifixion. And as he is uh, coming into the city, he asks the, his disciples a question. Basically, he says, what's the word on the street? What are people saying about me? In fact, notice how Jesus put it. When he came into the region, he asked his disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? What are they saying? And there's a lot of things they could be saying, but what are they saying? And their response is really interesting. It's kind of a mixed response because they said, well, some think that you're John the Baptist. Now, you want to remember that John the Baptist is dead at this point. He's already been beheaded by Herod. And so the fact that they would think he's John the Baptist tells you uh, a lot about Jesus and his style of preaching. And not only that, the fact that he might have even looked similar to John. You remember, they were first cousins. So maybe there was some family resemblance there. But some people thought, well, you're John. That's who you are. Others said, no, you're Elijah or Jeremiah or you're one of the other prophets. That's who you are. Now, we're not surprised by this mixed reaction because, let's, let's face it, Jesus was sort of an unknown carpenter's son. He, he really, raised in Galilee, really people didn't know who he was very much. Now around his hometown they knew him, but they always said, oh, he's Joseph's son. That's how they recognized him. Because you remember, Jesus really didn't do anything as far as his ministry is concerned until after his baptism at the age of 30. So for the first 30 years of his life, other than when he was 12 years old and went to Jerusalem with his parents for, for a Passover feast, and that was the only time really that he had an interaction that we have a record of, 
And they were kind of surprised about that. And so finally, at the age of 30, he begins his ministry, and people are like, well, we really don't know who he is. And so that's when Jesus turned his attention to them, and he said, well, who do you think I am? And you all know this passage, because Peter, by inspiration, says, you are the Christ. You're the Son of a living God. That's who you are. And you remember the next verse says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed that to you. In other words, yes, you got that, but you got it from inspiration. And so that raises this question in my mind. If you and I are willing to stand before men and admit that Jesus Christ is deity, that he is the Son of God, what is the basis of that admission on our behalf? How do we know that? How do we know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? How do we determine it? Is it just on the basis of blind faith? Is that all it is? We just will blindly think, well, yeah, Jesus is, is Christ. He's the Son of God. Or is it because our parents believed it and taught us to believe it? Which is certainly possible. I mean, that happens all the time. But the, really the question is, what evidence could we find? What evidence could we use to prove that Jesus is the Christ? Now, I know from what... Uh, you said a moment ago that you're going to be discussing some of these issues, and so I don't want to tread on anybody's territory, but I will just briefly mention that if you search the Scriptures, you will see there is a tremendous amount of evidence for the deity of Christ. One of the first things that you will notice is the use of miracles. You know, when Jesus performed miracles, even his enemies had to admit that he did it. In John chapter 11, verse 47, this is in reference to the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And you remember, after he raised Lazarus, and there were some of the witnesses that were there. They went back to Jerusalem, and they told the chief priests and the elders, hey, he raised this man from the dead. And they said that he did this miracle we cannot deny. They could not deny it. Now, that wasn't the only thing Jesus did, obviously. He not only raised the dead, everywhere he went, he healed the sick. He, he defied the laws of nature, the laws of gravity, by taking a boy's lunch and feeding 5,000 men plus women and children. Really just a few sardines and a couple of, of, uh, of crackers. And yet he was able to feed them with 12 baskets full left over. Let me tell you, that's defying the laws of nature. You just, that's creative power. He could walk on water, which he did on more than one occasion. And the point I'm making is there's, there's all kinds of evidence, and perhaps the greatest miracle of all is the one that Paul talks about in Romans 1 and verse 4. Do you remember how Paul words this? Let me read it to you. Paul says, <clears throat> talking about this miracle, this resurrection of Christ, he said he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Let me tell you, there were other people who had been raised, but they all died. Lazarus died again. And, I, you know, I, I wish I could spend more time talking about Lazarus, but I, I mentioned to Kevin before we got started, you put your clock right up here where everybody could see it. That was by design, I know. Don't tell me you didn't do that on purpose. I know you did. I'm used to it being in the back where people have to actually turn around to see it. But if I had the time, we would talk about the raising of Lazarus. But the point I'm making is Lazarus died again. Jairus' daughter died again. The widow of Nain's son died again. Jesus did. He died once, but he was raised from the dead, never to die again. But that's not the only thing. In John chapter 5, John talks about the witnesses of his deity. And he, he mentions four witnesses. The first one is 
John the Baptist. He says, John witnessed and testified to me, and that's exactly what John did. You remember when John saw Christ after his baptism? He told his disciples, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's testimony. That's what that is. In fact, he went on to say that God told me that on whom I see the Spirit of God descending as a dove, it is he who shall baptize you in the, in the Holy Spirit and also shall baptize you with fire. He said that's who that is. And it's Christ. He testified of that. But John's not the only witness. The works that were given him by his father was a witness to what he says in verse 36. That's talking about the miracles. Here's the works that his father gave him to do. And he says, that was a testimony. The father himself testified that Jesus is, is the Son of God. You remember? Three times he said from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. There's testimony. But the one that we're really interested in is number four, because number four is the scriptures. Listen to the way Jesus says this. Here in John uh, chapter, uh, <clears throat> verse 39, he says, the scriptures testify of me. That's what we want to talk about. I want to remind you to go back for a moment to our text in Luke chapter 24, and notice, notice again, I've I tried to highlight this for you, notice again what Jesus says to his apostles. He says, all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. That's the scriptures. That's the Old Testament scriptures. That's the way the Jews divided them up. They divided them up between the law and the prophets and the Psalms. And he said all things had to be fulfilled, and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures, which he said was one of the witnesses. Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And he said, this is the fulfillment of the scriptures. That's what this is. So when you think about the scriptures for a moment, you, you have to remember that this is talking about the Old Testament. The, the New Testament hasn't been written yet. It's going to be decades before the New Testament is ever put into a book. Ever. The letters haven't even been written. He's talking about the Old Testament. And then you remember the two uh, disciples who were on the road to Emmaus. This was the day the Lord was raised from the dead. And they were traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And as they were going along, Jesus joined them. Now, they didn't recognize him as Jesus. They, they didn't know who it was. But they were, he asked them, he said, what are you all talking about? Because they were discussing the events of the day. And they said, basically, in a, almost in derision, where have you been? They said, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? Don't you know what's been going on here the last few days? And then they sort of recapped it for him. And they said, well, I'll tell you what happened. Our, our master was crucified by the Romans, and his body is missing. And some of the women this morning said that they met an angel, and the angel said he had been raised from the dead, and some of our own disciples, and he was thinking about Peter and John, uh, had gone to the tomb, and he wasn't there. So they're telling Jesus, that's what's going on, and we're, we're sort of perturbed by this. We don't know what to think. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. 
He said, I'll just explain to you what the scriptures say about me. And you remember, they went on a little further. They finally get to their destination. They invited him to spend the night. And as he was breaking bread, their eyes were open and they recognized who he was. And you know what they did even at that late hour? They went right back to Jerusalem. It was seven miles. They went right back to Jerusalem even at that late hour because they had to tell the disciples, we've seen the Lord. We've seen the Lord. Pretty amazing. That brings me really to my assigned topic. Because what I'm going to talk about tonight is what do the scriptures, what do the Old Testament scriptures say about Christ? Christ and prophecy is what was given to me. Because, again, Jesus was talking about those things revealed under the Old Covenant. What did they say about him? You know, Peter talked about that a little bit in 1 Peter chapter 1 when he was talking about those, uh, those prophets of old. And he said, and he was talking to us about receiving the end of your salvation. And then he says in verse 10 of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. But notice, they searched who or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ was in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And, and what Peter's saying is, these Old Testament prophets, they didn't have a clue who this was. Through inspiration, the Holy Spirit was in them. Through inspiration, they write these things down, these prophecies, but they, they really don't know. They want to know. But they haven't been, it hasn't been made privy to them. They just don't have that information made available at this point. And so they searched. Who is this? Who is he talking about? Especially about the Christ that would have to suffer these things. Now, what I want you to also to observe, one other point, and that is that whenever Paul and Silas would go, and this was true of any of the apostles, whenever they would go and preach, they would use these Old Testament scriptures, every one of them, to prove who Christ was. Notice what he says here. Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and from, for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and to rise again from the dead. Where did he get that? The Scriptures. They didn't have the New Testament. They don't have the Gospels. They have the Old Testament Scriptures. And look what it talked about. So that's what we're going to talk about. Predictive prophecy. And the question that I have as we begin this, this evening is this. Why is predictive prophecy that Jesus is the, is the Messiah, the Son of God, why is that proof? Why is that proof? What is it about prophecy that makes it proof? I guess that's really the question. And so we need to begin by defining our terms. So we'll begin with uh, some terminology here. Robert Milligan, in his book, The Scheme of Redemption, talking about prophecy, he says that the word for prophecy means to boil up like a fountain. He says in both the Old and New Testaments, a prophet is one who, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, speaks the words and the thoughts of God, whatever they relate, whether they relate to the past, to the present, or to the future. And that, that's an important point to remember. A prophet wasn't necessarily one who foretold the future. Sometimes they did, but sometimes they didn't. A prophet, really by the simplest definition, is one who speaks for God. And so sometimes the prophets would just tell you about things that had happened in the past, sort of to bring them to your remembrance, and sometimes they'd tell you about what was going on right now in your life, in your world, in your existence. Sometimes they would, in fact, tell the future. A, a spokesman for another person is basically what a prophet was. They were an ambassador sent to make known the will and the purpose of God, and they were not speaking 
their own words. The words were given to them from a different source, a heavenly source. It wasn't them. They didn't make this up. They didn't think this up. God gave them this information. Sometimes that involved foretelling or telling the future, but not always. Now, again, I go back and ask the question, why is this proof? We've got these Old Testament prophecies. Why is that proof? Well, what we're going to do is I'm going to sort of uh, talk to you about the nature of prophecy for a moment. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to let you imagine. I like to imagine sometimes. And we need to let our mind think and wander just a little bit. So I want you to imagine that you have a, an uncle, a great uncle who was a merchant marine. He traveled the world. And he died. And in his death, in his will, he left you his old steamer trunk. Remember those old steamer trunks? Like Patty likes them so much, we got a couple of them hanging around the house. And these old steamer trunks. And so you get that steamer trunk, and you start looking through it, and he's got all kinds of things in there. But you find, in the steamer trunk, you find a book. And what's interesting about that book was it was written in 1460 by a man in England. Now, what's also interesting about that book is it makes predictive prophecy. And so it wants to talk to you about the details of a man who was from the future. In fact, he lives in the 20th century. Now, I want to point out to you that in 1460 to the 20th century, that's about 400 years. That's important to remember. The thing you know about this man is he was born into a large, wealthy family. Again, not, not so unusual. The family made their fortune through illegal enterprises. Again, that's not so unusual, unfortunately. But also, this man would become a war hero. And he would save the lives of fellow warriors, people who, in fact, had fought alongside of him. He would be injured, and he would suffer from those injuries the rest of his life. This book is detailing all of this information. And then he would serve in public office in a land across the sea not yet discovered, because this was written in 1460, and you know, when did Columbus sail the ocean blue? 1492, I believe, was the year. So to a land that hadn't even been discovered yet. And in fact, this man would rise eventually to become the head of that country. That's pretty specific. And he'd be assassinated while in office. And monuments and roads and buildings would be named for him. Now, I can tell by looking at your face, you know exactly who I'm talking about. And, and how impressive would it be to find a book written 400 years before this event took place, and it detailed all of that information. What that would do is that would, first of all, tell you that, you know, there's something pretty significant about that book and the author of that book. Because what you would know is no ordinary man could have written that book for one reason. Humans can't predict the future. Can you predict the future? Of course not. We may be able to predict a little bit of what we plan on doing, but that's not predicting the future. Because we all understand that that could change at a moment's notice, especially 400 years in advance. That's just beyond the realm of possibility. In fact, I would suggest to you that do you know what you'll be doing 400 days from now, April of 2018? Of course not. Maybe you have a general idea. We may not even be here 400 years, 400 days from now. 
How about 400 hours from now, about 16 days from now? You know what you'll be doing? Maybe have a general idea. How, how about 400 minutes? That's about six hours from now. Well, maybe you'll be asleep, hopefully. I plan to be. So maybe I can get a little closer to making that prediction. But the point I want to make with you is the closer we get to the present, the more predictive our guesses become. But we're still not certain, are we? We're still not certain. And we're not certain because only God can tell the future. We don't have that capability. And so we would be impressed with a book that had all of that detailed information about Kennedy in it, written 400 years ahead of time because we understand that no man could do that. And so that raises this point about the nature of prophecy. Biblical prophecy was written 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testaments. It wasn't by accident I chose 400 years. I wanted you to understand the significance there. And when you look at those prophecies, 2,000 Old Testament prophecies, 300 plus were about the Messiah himself, and every one of them was fulfilled to the letter. Every one. Now, I know there are some who are critics and say, oh, but that's only because those prophecies were written after the fact. Have you heard people make that argument before? Well, these prophecies were written after the fact because, you see, there's no way that they could possibly predict the future. There's only one little problem with that, and that is a little book called the Septuagint. The Septuagint just destroys that because the Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures, and notice it was written in the second century, 250 years before the events took place in the first century with Christ. So even if they want to argue, okay, 400 years is just ridiculous, fine, I'll go with 250. I have no problem with that. It's still predicting the future. And we understand the Septuagint was written at that point, and they can't argue with that. It is an impossibility for them to argue with that. And so we have to ask ourselves this question. If that is the case, then what are the, the odds of something like that taking place? What, what's the chances? One of the things I want you to notice, there were zero prophetic failures. Zero. Every one of these prophecies was completed, every one of them. Notice I have in parentheses over here, 8% success for psychics. <laughs> I, I did that on purpose. I was actually, when I was preparing for this lesson a few weeks ago, I, I turned on the local station there in Inglewood, and they, they sometimes do local programming of the radio station, and they had a psychic on there in that area. And the host she was talking about the dead and the fact that she could talk to the dead and things of that nature, which was kind of interesting. And then the host said to her, well, if you can, if you can do that, why, why, can't you just, why can't you just predict the lottery and never have to work again? Why can't you just do that? And she laughed and said, oh, we can't predict that, but I can talk to the dead. I was like, really? <laughs> I, Psychics have an 8% success rate, 8%. 300 prophecies about Christ, every one fulfilled down to the letter. 
Now, I would tell you that there is no other religion that has very specific, repeated, and unfailing predictions of events years in advance written by people who had no control over those events. Isaiah, written 700 years before Christ was ever born, couldn't control anything about the, about the, the birth of Christ or the death of He couldn't control any of that. That's pretty amazing. Now, the thing you want to understand is what are the odds of that happening? Well, let me just ask you this question. What are the odds of these 300 prophecies being fulfilled? Let me ask it this way. What are the odds of winning the lottery? Now, I realize nobody in here buys lottery tickets, but I still want to, I want to share this information with you anyway. What are the odds? One in 292 million are the odds of winning the lottery. Now, when I... When I looked this up, I thought it was kind of an interesting comparison because they said you have a better chance of dying on the way to buy your lottery ticket than you do of winning the lottery. <laughs> that's, just, that's just sort of like, whoa, okay, wait a minute. Make your way. And, they, and, and, uh, and somebody else was talking about it. it's one in 292 million. They said that would be the equivalent of every man, woman, and child in this country. Their name was put in a hat. What are the odds of your name being pulled out? That right there. Now, I'm not advocating the lottery. That's not my point. My point is this. What are the odds that 300 prophecies were fulfilled in one man? Actually, I don't even want to talk about 300 prophecies. I want to talk about eight prophecies. There's 300, but there's these eight right here. The place of his birth, the time of his birth, the manner, his betrayal, the manner of his death, the people's reactions, the piercing of his side and his burial. Mathematicians have figured the probability of any one person fulfilling all eight of these, not 300, but eight, is 1 in 10 to the 17th. In other words, 1 with 10 and 17 zeros behind it. Well, how big is that? Well, let me explain it this way. There is a state of Texas. Let's suppose that you covered the state of Texas one, uh, two feet thick with silver dollars. And you took one silver dollar and you put a big red X on it and you put it out there in the middle of all those other silver dollars and you took a volunteer, blindfolded them and let them walk in any direction they wanted to walk as long as they wanted to walk and they could stop and reach down. What are the odds they'd pick up that silver dollar? That's the odds that one person could fill those eight prophecies. Just those eight, not counting the other 300. The odds are astronomical. And of course, we understand we're not talking about odds. And the reason that we know that this is proof is because the only one who can predict the future is God. That's it. And I said a moment ago, predictive prophecy is the strongest evidence that the Bible is divine and that Jesus is the Christ. It's stronger than miracles. It is stronger than the resurrection. Because it takes faith to believe in the resurrection, doesn't it? It does. Prophecy? It's there. It's in black and white. You can see it, and you can see the fulfillment of it. It is the strongest evidence that Jesus is the Christ. Now, I want to share with you just a few prophecies, because I know we, we only got a few minutes left. But I just want to share a few of them. We're going to look at some specific ones here in a moment. But the first thing I want to do is I want to talk about nine out of the 300. And I want you to notice I've got these listed here, and 
I've got the place where it is listed in Isaiah or Micah or Hosea or wherever, and it's got the fulfillment. One thing I want you to notice, every one of the fulfillments comes from the book of Matthew. That was by design. I did that by design. He's not the only one that fulfills prophecy, but the reason I did that is, and I encourage you, if you make this list, to go home and, and read it later. And what I want you to notice about every one of these fulfillments, Matthew always says the same thing. He states some event that happens, and then he says, this fulfilled what was written by the prophet, and then he quotes the prophet. So we don't have to guess. For example, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 talks about the maiden or the virgin bearing a child. Was that messianic? Matthew says it was. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, he quotes Isaiah 7, 14. This was written to fulfill the prophecy. That's exactly what it was. Now, the point I'm making is Matthew was an inspired man, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit told him this is the fulfillment of that prophecy. And every... Now, I've got a question for you. How many virgin births have there been? I don't mean how many claim to have been born of a virgin, because you know, there are some people out there who make that claim. We know there's only one. And my point is this. How would he know? How would Isaiah know that that's what was going to happen? How could he possibly know that? He couldn't have guessed that. He couldn't have guessed something that had never happened before and would never happen again. He had to have been told. Born in Bethlehem. Not some town in Judea or Galilee or Palestine, but Bethlehem. And the thing also that you have to remember, there were two Bethlehems. Two. But Micah tells us it was Bethlehem of Ephrata, which is a specific city, the city of David. He told us which Bethlehem it was. How did he know that? Called out of Egypt, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Joseph and Mary gave birth to Jesus, do you think they knew they were going to Egypt? You remember, they, they, they had to go to Bethlehem because the census was taking place. That's the reason they had to go there. Everybody, everybody knows that story. But they had to go there for the census, and they had to wait until the census was completed. They had to go back to the city of their forefathers, the city of David. Because you remember, both Joseph and Mary came from David's lineage. You can see that in the genealogies. But here's the point. They didn't know they were going into Egypt. They didn't go down there thinking, okay, well, listen, when we're through here, let's just do a side trip and go over to Egypt. They didn't know that. Joseph has to be warned by an angel in a dream. Get up and go to Egypt. Why? Because Herod is killing the innocents. He is massacring and slaughtering all male children under the age of two. And he'll do that to you, too. He'll do that to your son. You go to Egypt. That was the prophecy. The massacre of the innocent. How, how would Jeremiah know that Herod would do that? And yet that's what Matthew says Jeremiah was talking about. Thus it was written. This is the fulfillment of that prophecy. He would be preceded by a messenger, John the Baptist. How did he know it would be John? His work would begin in Galilee. Why not begin in Judea? That's where Jerusalem is. That's where the headquarters is. That's where the temple is. That's where it should have begun. No, it began in Galilee. That was the first place. How would Isaiah know that? He was to teach by parables. How did Aspa know that? Aspa was the one who wrote Psalm 78. How did he know that that's the way he was going to teach? 
People normally don't teach with parables. We don't teach with parables. Parables are stories that are, the word actually means to lay down beside. That's what the word parable means. And it means you tell a story and it's got an application to it. That's, that's basically what it means. We don't do that. We, we occasionally will throw an illustration out there. We'll do that. But we don't teach in parables. Jesus taught in parables. How would he know? He would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. There's no way Zechariah could know that. He would be sold for 30, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. The price of a slave. How would Zechariah know that? Just nine of them. That's all, just nine of them. Now, what I'd like to do for the rest of our time is I want to talk about two specific prophecies because I think that they, that these are the prophecies that really send it home to me. The first of these is from Isaiah chapter 53. The second one is in Psalms 22. And we're going to look at Isaiah 53 here in a moment. And in fact, you should have a sheet that was passed out to you. I, um, I understand that uh, Kevin's to be blamed if you didn't get a sheet. Is that, that correct? Is that what I heard? Okay. So, now, I want you to notice these prophecies here. In Isaiah 53, and Isaiah is called the Messianic prophecy for a reason. There are 38 specific prophecies about the Lord in 12 verses of Isaiah 53. 12. That's all. If you do a little math, that averages over three prophecies per verse. In other words, Isaiah 53, this chapter is nothing but a collection of prophecies about Jesus. That's all it is, and that's that sheet that you have. Now, we're not going to look at, we're not going to read those. I'm not going to go back and look at them. I got that for you, for you to look at. But I do want to read Isaiah 53. Again, it's only 12 verses. And as I read this, I want you to be thinking about what you know about the Lord and about the things that he suffered, because Isaiah deals with the crucifixion. Listen to what he says, beginning in verse 1. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked. But with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many. He shall bear their iniquities. 
Therefore I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. That's what our Lord did. That's what it's all about. He was sacrificed. Why? Because it was God's plan. You see, here's the problem. The problem is that we're sinners. We're all sinners. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, there's none who is righteous. No, not one. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the problem in Romans chapter 3 is that God has a dilemma. And his dilemma is this. He is an absolute just God. Justice demands that sin be paid for. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Justice demands that death be paid for sin. And the fact is that if we are not in Christ, we'll pay for our sin. We will die. We will be separated forever, for all eternity from our God, from our Creator. We will. There's no option there because God is just. But see, his dilemma is this. He's just, but he wants to justify those who have faith in him. He wants to justify sinners. How can he do it? He sends a propitiation. That's the word that's used in Romans 3. It's used in 1 John chapter 2. It's used in Romans later on. And you know, when you look at these passages, you know what propitiation means? It means the appeasement of God's wrath. That's what the word means. God's wrath through his justice, is going to afflict those who are lost in sin. But Jesus stepped in and said, I'll take it on me. And what Isaiah is talking about here is why he did that. Why God made him go through that. Later in Romans 5 and verse 8, he says, God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Earlier in that chapter, he had raised this question. He said, who would die for a wicked man? He said, some maybe would die for a righteous man. Maybe they would even dare to die. But who's going to die for a wicked man? And he said, Christ did. Christ did. And Isaiah talked about that. Psalms 22. Psalms 22 is a little different. Because Psalms 22 presents the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ from the Lord's viewpoint as he hung on the cross. So you read Psalms 22, this is the Lord looking out over that crowd. This is the Lord suffering on the cross and what he's thinking and what he is going through. Now what is significant about Psalms 22 is that the Jews knew nothing about crucifixion when David wrote this song. Crucifixion wasn't being practiced then. Remember David lived a thousand years before Christ. A thousand years before the Lord was ever born. Nobody practiced crucifixion. Nobody did. Now later on, the Parthenians would, would pick it up and they would institute it. They're really the ones who started it and the Romans perfected it. The Romans took it and just made it. Yeah, that's what they used. But a thousand years before the birth, nobody talked about crucifixion. Nobody did it. And yet David writes about it. And when you look at just, just a few areas in Psalms 22, we won't read that psalm, but in, that, in this psalm it talks about his cry to the Father, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's Psalms 
22 verse 1. The period of darkness. From 12 noon to 3 o'clock in the afternoon, it was dark. Completely dark. And it won an eclipse. We're told about the ridicule of the people who would stand there and they would walk by and they would see our Lord hanging on the cross and they would just wag their heads. Patty and I had an opportunity to live in, in Turkey when I was in the Air Force. And when, the, when you do something the Turks don't like, which evidently was frequently with me, I always did things I didn't like, they would just wag their head and they'd go. So I heard that a lot. That's basically what was going on. The Lord's hanging on a cross and the people are walking by and they're like, he saved others. See if he can save himself. Ridicule. His thirst and the pain. His pierced hands and feet. They gambled for his clothing. How did David know they would do that? The inner garment, the woven garment, the one piece that, uh, made out of linen that well, they didn't want to tear it, so they gambled for it. They cast lots. How would David know that they would do that for the Messiah? Well, some things we sometimes forget that David was a prophet. That's what Peter calls him in Acts chapter 2, verse 29 and 30. David was a prophet, and foreseeing that his son, talking about God's son, would not, he would not allow his son to see corruption. He would not leave him in the grave. But foreseeing the resurrection from the dead, David saw that. So he was inspired by God, 2 Peter 1, verse 20 and 21. Now, when you look at those two passages, and, and what you walk away with is this. The only reason David knew is because God told him what was going to happen, like he did every other prophet. Every other one. So... We're coming to the end of the lesson, and, and one of the things we just have to really emphasize is this. All of the 300-plus Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah have been fulfilled in Christ. Not one was omitted. Not one. So, I guess the question is, what do these prophecies mean to us today? What do they mean to us? These prophecies are so powerful... They could only be revealed by a divine God who both knew what would happen in the future and had the power to guarantee that it did happen. That's why prophecy is so powerful. If God truly revealed these things and exercised his power to see that they were accomplished, and if Jesus is truly the Messiah, as these prophecies declare, then the Bible must be a special divine revelation from God, and Jesus of Nazareth must be the Christ, the Son of God, there is no other conclusion that a thinking person can reach. None other. Prophecy is the most powerful evidence for Jesus being the Messiah. And we are subject to this book. You know why a lot of people are not interested in doing what God has said in this book? Because God makes demands on our life. And they're not willing for those kinds of demands to be made on their life. They don't want to hear it. So when we think about the Lord for a moment, we have to make this point. It wasn't nails that held him to the cross, but his love for you and me. That's what kept him on that cross. Do you accept Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God?
what's your life like? What's your relationship like with the Lord right now? Do you have your sins forgiven? Those same sins that put him on the cross? If they haven't been forgiven, then you need the blood of Christ. It's the only way that your sins can ever be forgiven. There's no other way it can happen. No animal can take away your sin. No other human being can pay for your sin. Only the blood of Christ can pay for your sin. If you have not accessed the blood of Christ, then we would encourage you to do that right now. We're going to stand, sing the song selected. If you're subbing the invitation, please come.